News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. And joining us, as he has on every election night since we've started, which means a whole bunch of them this year, is uh, Ben Max of Gotham Gazette. How are you guys doing? Hello there, Harry. Hello there, Ben. Good evening. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be back. Hey, Ben, thanks for being back. Sure. Um, so, so look, this was a uh, pretty early sort of unsurprising night. Uh, Kathy Hochul won by a lot. Her brand new lieutenant governor, Antonio Delgado, won easily. Lee Zeldin won by about 20 points uh, to become the Republican nominee for governor. There was not a ton of turnout. Uh, what do we uh, know now that we didn't? And, and what does this tell us about how things are shaping up going into November with, of course, another primary happening in August? Yeah, there's a lot here. Um, you know, it was kind of an anticlimactic night, but at the same time, there's like a, there's a lot to take away here. Uh, a few initial thoughts are, I mean, I do think we need to really look at what this turnout winds up looking like. Um, there were about a million and a half votes in the Democratic primary in 2018 with um, Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon. Um, I, I don't think we're going to hit that number and could come up well short. So that'll be an interesting storyline. And this is partly what Governor Hochul wanted. She she declined to pursue merging the two primaries to August when the court ordered the state Senate and congressional lines redrawn and, and those primaries moved. She could have made a push with the legislature to combine the primaries, but she didn't want to give her opponents more time. She didn't want to keep, you know, the possibility of Andrew Cuomo jumping into the race out there. And, and she knew she had these really big advantages of coming out of the state budget and then the legislative session. And she's basically just been signing bill after bill and announcing budget investment after budget investment. She didn't even really need to run a campaign. You know, there was a, uh, there's been stories about how her campaign has been muted, but I'm looking at her government schedule and I'm, you know, I'm thinking she's, she's pretty much got it covered. She's signing voting rights bills and gun control bills and abortion bills. And, uh, you know, she's in pretty good shape. So anyway, I think, you know, I think one of the biggest stories of the night clearly is Jamani Williams underperforming what the progressive candidates have gotten in the last two gubernatorial Democratic primaries. I think there's a lot to dissect there and we could get into some of that. Um, uh, but beyond, and, and the same thing in the lieutenant governor race. I'm pretty shocked that Anna Maria Archilla didn't do better. Uh, Antonio Delgado has been in the office and in the race for six weeks or so. Um, and so there's there's interesting stuff about the power of incumbency uh, in these elections and the low turnout because we're seeing it even in the state legislative races and some real struggles for the progressive movement in New York here uh, in these elections. On the Republican side, I mean, Lee Zeldin was the favorite all along, he jumped in the race really early, got tons of endorsements, raised some money. You know, Harry Wilson came in late with his own money, but I didn't expect that to really go too far, given he's just not where the party is. Thought Giuliani might be able to give him a scare because of his name. But, uh, you know, that I don't think there's any surprises there. And, you know, we can obviously get into the 
the what the general election looks like. But I think some really interesting stuff on this sort of first post Cuomo uh, primary, the turnout and um, the struggles of the progressive left here. Chrissy, mm. let's talk about the uh, progressive left for a minute. You know, Jamani Williams has run against Kathy Hochul before for lieutenant governor, did really well. Uh, he did not get AOC's endorsement, well, which is running mate, uh, Archilla did. That didn't seem to mean very much. Uh, AOC also endorsed, uh, uh, oh my goodness. It's been a long day, folks. Maya Wiley. Maya Wiley, who, uh, oh. who came in third <laughs> oh, in the mayor's race. Um, and you did see all these assembly challengers, for the most part, come up come up short. Uh, at the same time, lefty incumbents did just fine uh, in this low turnout race. Like, is this some sort of high watermark for, for, for the left and Democrats in New York, potentially? And also, did... did What's happened nationally in these Supreme Court decisions? Do they change the dynamic as we're looking ahead to August and November? Right. So I think we have to unpack that multi-layered question because on the one hand, there's a question about AOC and does her endorsement mean anything? Thus far, doesn't really seem like it does. Not in New York. Um, you know, in many ways, she's kind of a national figure. I think she does a great job for her district. And we haven't really seen, though, her endorsement really translate into real movement outside of her own district and kind of, you know, talking points for progressive Democrats across the country. Um, because keep in mind, most Democrats aren't progressive. I mean, Black voters are across the ideological spectrum, which is what I said tonight in New York One, but a lot of Black voters understand white voters better than white voters. So it's like they are willing to go with a second or third choice because they know the capacity of white voters. And white voters oftentimes see sort of equity as loss. And so if we're talking about redistributing goods and services and a policy position that, you know, is is equitable, most white voters are not into that. And so even if black voters are into it, they recognize they go with a second or third choice candidate so they get something as opposed to nothing. Right. Because we see what happens when you when you lose and Republicans get into office, black people definitely get nothing. So. That's the AOC piece. I don't really see, you know, it's always, will she endorse someone? It's like, well, we haven't really seen her endorsement do a lot of movement. So I guess we'll still keep asking that question because she has emerged as the progressive leader, not just in New York, but I think for a lot of people nationally who want the Democratic Party to actually be a royal blue. And it's not. It's many, many shades of blue. Then we have to ask ourselves, so what is the progressive party doing in the state of New York? You know, on the one hand, when we look at the progressive candidates that have been put up before Jumaane, we had Zephyr Teachout, who was a first-time candidate. No one knew who she was. It's like Chrissy Greer and Zephyr Teachout. That's kind of it, right? Um, first-time candidate, and she got a third of the vote. And some people are like, oh, that's, is that a fluke? You know, how was it? Then you've got Cynthia Nixon, who, you know, God bless Eljoy Williams and Rebecca Katz. They did all they could with that horse. But, like, she's... A quick study in an actress, but like, ask her a question and she can answer it. You could ask her a follow up, maybe a third follow up. She drowns. So like, she's not a politician. I mean, she's an actress who cares about the state. Thank you for running and thank you for your service. It's not the same. So then she gets a third. So then we have Jumani who comes in, who is a public servant, but and but and has also been running what every year for the past six years. 
is it? And so I'm not saying that he's in Michael Blake territory, but I would argue that he might want to sort of, you know, dance with the person who brought him to the show because we are getting dangerously close to Jumaane running for several offices every year and voters not seeing him as the activist public servant that he has been for so long and possibly seeing him as someone who's just chasing an office, which I don't think that that's who he is, but but he could be seen as that if he decides to run for something else next year to hold a you know progressive mantle and carry that forth. I, I think it's, it's interesting, but you were talking about, about most black voters. I think most voters didn't show up in these... Uh... Assembly races, you know, you're talking about four digits to win. Uh, you had candidate uh, who Adams particularly supported, um, uh, who was going up against an incumbent who lost badly in the, uh, what is that, the 58th Assembly District, uh, Hercules Reed. Um, you got about 35% of the vote. You had the uh, husband of the leader of the Brooklyn Democratic Party run for a lower position and, and, and also lose badly. This seemed in some ways like an empire strikes back night in which incumbents did well. And the idea on the left and with Adams who said he's running against this movement explicitly at some points, uh, his challengers also didn't do well. And people were already in power and people who voters were used to voting for just seemed to do fine across the board. I am curious with this sense of potentially a red wave coming and now these Supreme Court decisions, if there is some space for, for some pushback or new challenges in November, Ben, or, 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 or if this just sort of seems like a year where only the most regular and habitual voters show up and, and people already have power and some money to give away. And one other thing you didn't mention with Hochul is she raised $34 million. I was just going to add that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just going to say something about that. Yeah. Actually, I mean, before getting to the general for a second, if I could just, you know, I think some of the stuff that um, Dr. Greer was saying w- is really important. Uh, also about AOC and the progressive left. When I had Jamani Williams on my sh- podcast last week, I asked him this. I said, are you in, in your race here? You're not getting the same endorsements as your lieutenant governor running mate. AOC, Jamal Bowman, Nidia Velasquez, a whole bunch of state legislators. They don't want to take off Hochul. They probably don't, you know, didn't think that he he could actually pull it off, even if they wanted to support him. Um, and then you, you see AOC do something, even with her endorsement of Archilla, which was that she came in pretty late again, just like she did with Maya Wiley. And you saw this issue again with the with the left just really not having it together in in another executive race here repeating sim- seemingly some of the same mistakes um and i i i put that a little bit on the candidate and then also it seems the working families party i mean the the working families party made some big errors in the mayoral race um obviously they didn't necessarily see scott stringer's campaign imploding over these uh, harassment, you know, claims that came came up from a, a, quite a while back, but um, you know, just the the inability to sort of really garner a movement here, and, and it's not just on the WFP, but also on the candidates themselves. And the fundraising is another issue here. You know, the fact that the like leftist candidate in a race for governor can't raise a million dollars statewide through grassroots. You know, Jamani Williams has challenges raising money, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that, in part because he's often speaking, obviously, for people who don't have a lot of money. But 
there's something that seems seems a little amiss here, and I think you know that'll require more dissection about um, both the organizing and the fundraising and and the challenges here because for him to not even hit the the Nixon teach out third of the vote number is is really interesting and I guess gets at the question about how much was an anti Cuomo vote and how much was really a you know a left progressive vote and and so there's some real questions there. But then also, yeah, we can't leave out the amount of money that Governor Hochul raised and spent here. Um, Just like that can't be left out of the discussion about Eric Adams winning last year either. He, you know, he, he spent, raised and spent so much more money than Maya Wiley or Catherine Garcia. So, so, but here's a, here's a quick difference, Ben, that I want to ask you about though, because when it was Cuomo v. Teach Out, it felt like a, a one-to-one matchup, you know, when it was Cuomo v. Nixon, it was Again, a one-to-one. This one with Jumani and Hochul, we still had Swazi. And Granny was running to the right, but and he would most likely siphon off votes from Hochul and not a, a Williams. But for someone who's a quasi-uninformed voter or someone who, you know, we still know that they're voters who just need to vote for and for whatever reason that is, you know, having three people in the race as opposed to two, do you think that that changes uh, Jumani's calculus and that? why we don't see him making that third threshold? Yeah, I, I, I guess that's a really important point to look into. You know, there there could be this sort of way that an anti-incumbency vote breaks down. Um, but I would probably tend to agree with, you know, one of the things you said more, which is that Swazi probably took some, some more moderate votes from Hochul, you know, especially on Long Island. I don't think those votes are necessarily going mm-hmm. to Jumani Williams. So I don't know. I mean, I think... I think Jamani Williams and the left sort of failed to to make it. I mean, I think to to I think to people on the left, you know, it seemed like it really a two two candidate race, right? I don't think they were too concerned about Tom Swazi. So I, yeah, I don't know, but I think that does raise again going back to you know how much was an anti Cuomo vote. You know, maybe maybe it's mm-hmm. uh, the incumbent the incumbent gets two thirds of the vote and the and the challenger or challengers get the other third. You know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I, but I think there's a lot of, um, you know, after action here for the, for the left to consider. Um, and, you know, I think again, the Hochul money and the powers of incumbency and the low turnout, you know, there was a, there was quite a, but I think I also don't want to not give her credit, right. She has made some mistakes, but she's also, um, you know, she came in saying she was going to outwork everybody and she, has had, you know, a pretty blistering, um, pace and work ethic. And, and that goes to the raising of this massive amount of money, which again is fairly easy when you're the sitting governor, but you still got to put the work in. We can raise questions about whether she's sort of trading access. I mean, there's, you know, there's big questions to ask there, but in terms of just a, a sort of political win, you know, I think she also deserves, you know, some credit that it wasn't just, you know, sort of failures by Williams and the left. I mean, she, you know, she put in the work because she was a known quantity to a lot of people in politics, but she still had to win people over. And, you know, it helps when you're governor, but, you know, you still got to do the work. Right. Well, I mean, I think it also helps that she's, you know, she's a shark. Like, let's be clear. Yeah. You know, you don't get to be governor of New York state (laughs) without being a shark. And, you know, don't forget when Andrew Cuomo essentially was trying to push her out and she just gave that nice, icy Buffalo smile and was like, no, thank you. (laughs) You know, it's like she... She was a, you don't get to raise $34 million. I also think that, you know, for better or for worse, 
the role of a lieutenant governor and the role of a vice president aren't defined. So when Cuomo essentially just leaves her to, I said this tonight on New York One, open up random Quiznos in the middle of nowhere, cutting ribbons, you know, she's also, she was clearly making connections. She was clearly building relationships. Um, and I, I think that, you know, obviously Lee Zeldin doesn't have nearly as much money as, as she does. I'm, I'm sure he'll go into aggressive fundraising. But I think that actually I didn't see much of a Kathy Hochul campaign. You know, I didn't feel it. And I think that we're going to see a, we're going to see her kick into high gear. I think I'm going to be really impressed by how this woman hits the pavement where I'm just like, wow, between June 29th and November 8th, I think we're going to see a totally different Kathy Hochul who's going to be laser focused. She's going to figure out how to answer that question about her husband and the Buffalo Bills and the Billions Stadium. I think she's going to figure out how to talk about crime and not link it to, you know, sort of this right wing hysteria. And I think that she's going to figure out how to essentially make New York a safe haven state and link it to the federal government and what we're seeing coming as the Supreme Court. Those are my sort of three um, ways that I think Kathy Hochul will try and seal this deal on November 8th. And she's certainly going to blanket the the airwaves with her message. So in their speeches tonight, Kathy Hochul said she, she, she is the bulwark between New York and the extreme right in effect. And Lee Zeldin, who did not accept the results of the presidential election and now is looking to run in a general election in New York, you know, went very directly on Hochul and uh, tried to present himself as a moderate. He also said, by the way, now for the first time, first thing he'll do after taking the pledge of office is to uh, fire Manhattan District Attorney Al Bragg. Um, Chrissy, maybe you start here. Just how do you see this general election shaping up? And given the, the, the there's a two to one plus advantage for uh, Democrats over Republicans, they're more independents than Republicans. We haven't had Republican win statewide since Pataki's third term, all of that. How, how serious a threat does uh, Zeldin potentially pose at a, at a moment when polls show most New Yorkers think the state is going in the wrong direction? Yeah, I mean, listen. I take these elections very seriously. Lee Zeldin is a man who refuses to recognize Joe Biden as the rightful president of the United States. He is a sitting congressman who did not vote to certify an election. He's a sitting congressman who thinks that January 6th was just, you know, was on some visitors to the Capitol and Chrissy's being hysterical. So I will not leave it up to chance that this man could possibly become the governor. We saw when he came on the stage, the first thing he said was, you know, we're going to fire Kathy Hochul. I mean, just, you know, the vitriol that comes out of that party right now and, and this sort of shamelessness is frightening, you know, frightening as a woman, frightening as a black person, frightening as a citizen, frightening as just a voter. So I do think that, um, you know, when you have rising crime and you have a, a right wing conservative party that is going to not just dog whistle, but dog bark about, you know, sort of the Negro problem, and they're going to mention Alvin Bragg any second they get, and everyone's coming to rape your wives and your children. <laughs> Hopefully not, because, you know, they're trying to take away abortion, but that's a whole nother conversation, right? And they'll try and distance themselves from some of the Supreme Court um, scenarios at, at times, and then obviously double down at other times. And so I, I think that we're going to see a lot of race baiting, and not even racially coded language. If we saw it out of Tom Swazi in a primary, 
when he's running to the right of Kathy Hochul. We damn sure know we're going to see it in Lee Zeldin starting Toot Sweet. So I am very concerned, and I hope that New Yorkers don't say, like, oh, well, she's the incumbent, so I don't really need to turn out, and, you know, she'll probably just cruise in. She's got more money than he does. I think that we need to take this election as seriously as any other election we would ever take seriously. The crime numbers, Sienna had a recent poll. It's like 92% across the state say crime's a serious problem. Um, It's 78% of New York voters, 61% of upstaters. So so you can start feeling in 79% of uh, black voters at this point that that is likely to be like the wedge issue, I would think, in this election. Ben, how do you see this playing out? And, and, And to put you on the spot, Mm. What's your uh, what's your over under uh, for uh, for Zeldin at this point? Oh, that's um, that's interesting. You know, um, I was looking at this earlier, but I don't have it in front of me. I think you know, I think Andrew Cuomo got just under sixty percent of the vote in twenty eighteen, um, and did a little worse than that in twenty fourteen, and and did the best of all three runs, of course, in twenty ten against Carl Palladino. Um, you know, I think this playing field is really, uh, it's a little bit hard to assess. There are the issues of crime, inflation, sort of the hangover of COVID and uh, issues around, you know, school closures and masking and some of these things that, you know, a lot of voters are still just very upset by. And, and you know, Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one in the state. There's more independents than Republicans in New York uh, by, a, by a small number. So, for Lee Zeldin to have a chance here, he has to win over a lot of the blanks, you know, the unaffiliated voters, the independents, and he's got to win, you know, a bunch of conservative Democrats. Before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, you know, I, I mean, I think I think that matters significantly as this, you know, as we look at this playing field ahead of the general election. But I don't know exactly how much that that will matter. I think. Um, you know, the issues of crime, cost of living, inflation, uh, taxes in New York, you know, these are things that Zeldin is going to try to focus on. Um, and then Hochul, of course, is going to focus on gun control, abortion rights, uh, some of the stuff she's passed as governor related to childcare and infrastructure, uh, some of those types of things. So, you know, if I had to, if I had to put a number on it, I would probably, you know, put, put it, you know, I, I would expect, you know, just going into this for the Democratic governor to come in somewhere in the high 50s, you know, but I think this is the type of year where a Republican has an outside shot to win. I don't think if, you know, Republicans were smart, they would have nominated someone like Lee Zeldin, but here they are with him. And it'll be very interesting to see him try to pull off some kind of general election pivot. Obviously, Hochul will also will paint him as anti-choice, as anti-gun control, as anti-democracy for not voting for the, you know, to certify the election. Uh, he voted against uh, marriage equality back when he was in the state Senate. So th- there's a lot of stuff to to use him as out of step with many New York voters. Uh, you know, the question will be whether that stuff trumps some of the sort of crime and pocketbook issues um, of taxes and cost of living that, you know, a lot of especially the sort of suburban, you know, voters, um, you know, care a lot about here. So I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be very interesting, but going into an election like this, the Republican candidate is, is clearly at a severe, you know, disadvantage, no matter what. But, you know, the pivot feels like an old strategy 
for Democrats mm. and Republicans. You sort of run on the, the polls and then you kind of shimmy to the middle. It feels like Republicans right now are like, let's double down. Yeah, all the exclusionary shit. You know, like let's double down on the fact that we we don't like gays and, and women and ovaries and Negroes and we want to build prisons. I mean, like it doesn't. I can't see him saying, "Let me try and grab all these independents that you know because we have a closed primary system who did not get to participate today or in early voting for either party." Right? I feel like the old Republican strategy was let me try and grab these independents who are well, also just weak leaning Democrats or Republicans. Like let's. Oh. Yeah. <sighs> well, I think on something thing. like abortion, he's going to probably mostly say, you know, the New York law is not going to change if I win, you know, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to, he's just not going to wear sort of his, his very clearly stated anti-choice um, belief. He's just, I don't, I just don't think he's going to try to run on that. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's just some things where he'll try to moderate a little bit or try to convince a lot of those independent voters that he's not uber conservative. But I, I agree in terms of like, I, I don't know, A, he's just, it's, it's a very hard pivot for someone with Zeldin's record to, to make. Uh, and Hochul's obviously going to try very hard to not let him have an inch in making it. Um, and I think he'll try to focus on the issues that he thinks he can win on and doing the fear mongering on crime talking. I mean, obviously there's some reality to it. The number, the, you know, the data obviously shows that, but, you know, escalating that even as some, some numbers might start to come down or already have, uh, and then talking about cost of living and taxes, you know, he's going to, he's going to try to do that. And I think I think both of those things do appeal a mm-hmm. lot to the voters we're talking about. But when you start to throw the issue of, you know, reproductive rights into the mix, that's that's a big advantage for Hochul and a big disadvantage for Zeldin in a state like New York. And, and it means that there's no chance that I think in November, New York City turnout is going to be really depressed, which uh, obviously would, would benefit Zeldin. Um, Ben, thank thank you for staying up past midnight with us yet again. Um, Closing question for both of you, Ben, first. We have two primaries this year, which is just atrocious. We may have assembly elections again with new maps in two years because of this. It's, It's all something of a mess. And if you voted today... You saw races on your ballot that, that most people just like, like what is this? Uh, you know, delegates to the judicial convention pick any 12 from slates. It's 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 messy and feels frustrating and not not particularly democratic. But staying with the political process, looking at these results right now, what do these say to the uh state senate and congressional candidates? who are on the ballot for this next primary in August, and particularly for the uh, the left that we've been talking about, what they need to do differently, and for the uh, Democratic regulars, uh, how, how they should approach this uh, this next set of contests. And that is, just, just to be clear, that is the uh, state Senate and congressional candidates. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how much I'm ready to take away from this election where we're really focused on statewide primaries to the, you know, this district by district election coming up for state Senate and and Congress. I know we had assembly primaries here, too, but, you know, I, I, I'm I'm always leery to sort of um, apply things from, you know, other races to to specific districts. You know, I, obviously, you know, it seems like a year where, you know, sort of 
people are feeling more kind of, you know, the, the, the zeitgeist is like more moderate, you know, it feels a little bit like a continuation of last year's mayoral race in some way that there's sort of like this concern about crime. There's obviously the pocketbook issues related to inflation and cost of living that are very real for people. And so when those two things are dominating, you know, I just think there is a lot of voters who are a little less enticed towards a challenger or towards, you know, taking, um, you know, a little bit more of a chance on the sort of leftist candidate. I'm not sure, you know, I mean, those candidates still need to um, get their ground game going and and talk to voters and convince them. I mean, Jamani Williams, that's his argument is like we, you know, when you, when you get your message in front of enough people, they, they see that you have solutions to these problems. They're just, they're just different solutions and you can convince them, but you, you know, they need the money, they need the organizing. So, there's going to be a bunch of fascinating primaries coming up in August. You know, it's going to be an interesting ramp up from this, this primary to what will probably be, even though it's in August, a higher turnout primary because of all the the races and the money that will be spent and congressional primaries, especially, Mm -hmm. and then the general election. But, you know, I, I, I think, I think for the most part, you know, incumbents can probably feel pretty pretty solid, you know, I not, not good, but solid coming out of this. Um, you know, but, but I think each race takes on dynamics of its own. Chrissy, you may have missed this in your car from New York one, but it Zeldin's victory speech after the long DJ Khaled, uh, ludicrous Rick Ross. All I do is win intro. He thanked pretty early on. Andrew Giuliani had said, this young man has a bright future in New York politics. And people broke out, I'm sorry to have to report to you, into a spontaneous chant of mayor, mayor, mayor. I said, oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Like, is there any hope for a, a, a sane and useful Republican Party in New York at this point? Or has that ship sailed? And does that mean... That a lot of voters and, and black voters in particular are, 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 are stuck begrudgingly going with Democrats, just given the alternative. Well, yeah, I mean, we see that with black voters kind of nationally because the white, the Republican Party has chosen to cast their lot with white nationalists and racists. So, you know, dare I say they chose that when they had Rudy Giuliani in 1993. I mean, he's the same man that he is today. Just other people are noticing it for the first time. Black voters been told folks that he was. As my grandmother would say, half a racist. So he's not he's not surprising to me. But I think the Republican Party has has decided that that's the white nationalist route they're going. And interestingly enough, depending, you know, when you look at particular states and how they're getting Asian-American voters and Latino voters, even in certain pockets in the South, black voters who are coming on, it's like, you know, you don't need to be white to have a white nationalist agenda. Uh, and so it'll be fascinating to see how that works um, in in statewide races, you know, we're seeing them sort of put up candidates of color. Republicans are putting up candidates of color. I don't see how it works in mayor's races, but Rudy Giuliani has, you know, the Meghan McCain syndrome. You know, it's like, father, my father, my father. It's like, well, what have you done? Because everything, every other word out of your mouth is father, my father. So it will be fascinating, though, if Andrew Giuliani wants to try and, and you know, make himself relevant and run for a local race. It's like, well, this actually is where national politics gets interesting because if we decide to keep going down this January 6th rabbit hole and we see this sheer incompetence and corruption of Rudy Giuliani, of which he is exhibited for many decades for a lot of us, but for some other people, they're just now seeing it. 
but to see just how involved he was with the Trump administration and the possible, you know, over attempt to overthrow the government, that might tarnish the Giuliani name for some, those independents, those people who are willing to overlook some of his racist overtures over the years. But I think for Republicans, they love the Giuliani name. I mean, Andrew Giuliani didn't get blown out of the water. I mean, when it's all said and done, he'll probably come in second place, um, which to me is, you know, he's like the Andrew syndrome. It's like, you're like a bad penny. You keep showing up and I need you to like go away. But I don't think that this is the last we've seen of Andrew Giuliani. I do think though, where I thought your question was going was uh, Lee Zeldin mentions Andrew Giuliani and thanks him. I thought the the shade of the evening, the shade award goes to Kathy Hochul, (laughs) (laughs) where she acknowledges Jumani Williams and, you know, says she's looking forward to working together and crickets on Tom Swazi. And I'm just like, you know, was very patronizing towards her during the campaign, calling her interim governor and stuff like that. Can I just say real quick, Zeldin got at this in his speech, but a, a, a lot of a Republican trying to win statewide will come down to, you know, many white voters in the suburbs. But but in New York City, we saw some of this movement of Asian voters and Latino yep. voters, especially yep. towards Republicans last year. And Zeldin got at this a little bit in his victory speech. And when you, you know, Republicans, the formula, you got to try to win 30% in New York City to win statewide and so forth. And so very clearly, his campaign is going to try to be speaking to disaffected mm-hmm. Asian voters, Latino voters, Orthodox Jewish voters, um, who've, who've, you know, all been uh, in different ways, you know, sort of moving a little bit, at least more conservative or a lot. Um, and th- so that'll be that'll be really, really interesting. And how Hochul, you know, sort of um, plays in the, in the suburbs and then also in the city with, with, especially with those groups, but also, you know, we've seen some criticism of how she handled her primary campaign from some black leaders in the city. So it'll be interesting to see again, how she sort of circles the wagons um, for the general. I think the difference though, is this Latino and Asian voters will vote for a Republican by and large black voters to to express their displeasure, they will just sit out. Yeah, yeah. And so no, that's, that's, I think that's the difference. I, I don't think that, you know, if Black leaders and voters are displeased with Hochul, it's just like, well, we're going to ignore her. Whereas I think we're seeing an active voting populace of Asian Americans and Latinos growing, not just in New York, but across the country for the Republican Party. I mean, listen, the leaders of the Proud Boys are Latinos. So, I mean, we're seeing kind of white nationalist sentiments coming through various Latino communities in states across the country, which I think is actually translating into um, ballots in, in certain races, which is obviously very concerning to someone who studies politics like me. So closing note here is the legislature is going back into session right after this election for a special session to deal with this Supreme Court decision. The uh, the yokels on the city council responded to this decision that explicitly said, you can't say all of New York City is a sensitive place by saying, we're going to make all of Manhattan a sensitive place where, where guns aren't allowed. It was truly embarrassing. Uh, this is going to be a real test of the legislature and, and how they're competently able or not to take this really disturbing decision that, that is going to allow a lot more people to legally carry guns in New York City, among other places, uh, and if they're, they're able to competently limit that, 
and and do that in, in, in a way that that, that uh, allows for our public safety and allows for legal scrutiny, not just something to run on. I'm, I'm very interested to see how that goes. Uh, ben, you're, you're, you're a minch. Thank you, as always, for staying up late with us. Chrissy, for rushing back to join. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, man. Good night. F-A-Q. FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, artists, and critics online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and came to you this evening from the borough of Brooklyn. We want to give a special, special thank you to our always present election night guest, Ben Max of the Gotham Gazette. And Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode, and we will see you all next week. Hope you voted.